know what? I really enjoy Halloween. Oh, I do too. And for me, it's like gay Christmas. Halloween starts like October 1st, and it's just Halloween all month. October is just Halloween month. I 100% am aligned with that. And speaking of, just because you mentioned Christmas, here's a question for you. Would you consider The Nightmare Before Christmas a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? This is a debate that apparently is going on forever. I just, I don't see why it can't be both. But I would say it'd be Halloween movie. That's what I would I pick, pick too. One. I mean, the main character is a skeleton. Like, do we really need to ask any questions? And they, like, kidnap Santa. Oh, sorry. Spoilers for people who haven't seen that movie yet. Obviously, go watch it. It's really old. Yeah. But it's amazing. Well, and it's kind of like the whole aesthetic of Halloween affecting another holiday. It's not... Because I think if it was reversed, I think if it was Santa you know, busting up into Pumpkinville and being like, ho, 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 here's some presents, you'd be like, it's a Christmas movie. I think that's a fair assumption. So, yeah. But um, one of my favorite parts of Halloween are the parties. And not just the, like, going to the club, listening to Thriller, like, all that, but also the going to people's houses. Theme parties are one of the kinds of parties I really like to throw, because... I get super duper type A about the food, and I can specifically flashback and picture myself cutting little, like, I think they were like cucumber sandwiches or something, into coffin shapes, and they had to be, and I spent like an hour doing it, and it was exactly what I needed. It's perfect. I love Halloween treats. Like, one of the ones Mm -hmm. that's super easy is, like, making Rice Krispie treats, but just rolling them. Like, use food coloring so it's a color, like, maybe, like, green Mm -hmm. or blue. Roll it into a ball and, like, use icing or whatever to make, like, eyeballs. Or even just get, like, eyeball, like, already made icing things. Boom. And they're so cute, and everyone loves those. Like, come on. Yeah. Honestly, candy takes... In my mind, it takes such a backseat to all the other better Halloween treats. I agree 100%. You could also do, like, a nice, like, um, cheese ball, but it's like a brain. Like, there are Mm. so many, like, normal party snack foods that you could just turn into a Halloween snack food. There's the, I mean, I don't know who does this, who has time for this, but the, you peel grapes, and it's like a bowl of eyeballs. Which, one, lame, no one wants to eat a bowl of grapes at a party, and two... (laughs) No one has that time. I don't even know how to peel a grape. Do you just use a potato peeler? Regardless. I love (laughs) Halloween. I'm feeling it. I'm also finally at a job that does Halloween and, like, does it hard. Really? Yes. Last year, my team did. We all dressed up like 80s prom, and it was wonderful. This year, we are 101 Dalmatians, and I'm so excited. There's also, like, 7,000 of us on our team. We're giant. That's adorable. It's very, very cute. Is someone going to be Cruella? Mm-hmm. I love it. My boss. I love it. Um, yeah. Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we are talking about one of the spookiest holidays of the year. Although, to be completely honest, New Year's is also quite spooky. I'll argue that point. Because it's a new year? It's a new year. You have no money because of Christmas, or or you have a lot of money, however you want to look at it. Um, and, you know, the passing of time can be spooky to people. Oh, and it's a time for you to reflect on all the things you didn't accomplish the year prior. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I, pretty, New Year's. Sp- pretty spooky when uh, you spend it alone. Uh, truth. I will say, though, 
I would have to argue that New Year's is my favorite holiday. No, I really like New Year's. I was just trying to, like, be funny, but it's fine. But it, it's true. <laughs> it's a very real holiday. It, it's very real. But no, uh, New Year's Eve is so fun. I have been single for the last, like, 100 New Year's, which, whatever, it's fine. Um, I've always had so much fun. So mm. this year is going to be just the same. Woo! I mean, we still got two months. I mean, you it's never true. Know. I know, I know, but like literally I live my life in the future, apparently. True. <laughs> but um, yes, so we are so excited about the holidays, but we are even more excited about our awesome Patreon supporters. Um, so if you haven't heard of Patreon, don't know what you're doing, but <laughs> you should definitely check out our Patreon page. It is a place for all of our fans to come together, support us. Uh, you get access to a bunch of new content from Murder Minis, Bottle Talk, to different updates. Last year we did an end-of-year recap video um, just going through all of our episodes, and it was a doozy. It wound up being like three many videos. more hours than we thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this year we're not going to do that, but we're going to come up with something. Yes, we will. Um, and depending on your level of support, you can get super involved and direct your own episode. You can get uh, different handwritten cards or shout outs on social media or in the podcast. And speaking of shout outs, I want to give a huge, huge shout out to Caitlin Manzer, who is our newest Chardonnay Syndicate member. Caitlin, thank you so, so much. We could not do this without your support. Hi, Caitlin. So glad yes. to have you. Hello, hello. And with that, this is actually, you know, we're just going to keep the Patreon thanks flowing. Um, I want to go ahead and segue into our topic because like Tyler was mentioning, depending on what tier you're at, there are different benefits. And if you're a top tier, you actually get to direct an episode. So this week's episode is directed by Sarah Copas. And the topic that we're going to do is one that's, it's a difficult one. It's about children who have been victim of heinous crimes. And Sarah had a specific case in mind that she wanted us to cover, uh, but I'm not going to add any spoilers for that. But just no um, warning for this one. If uh, kids are a trigger for you, then wanted to give you the heads up right now. But Sarah, we're excited about this episode. I know we found really great cases to do and wanted to thank you so much for all of your support. We're really excited to do your pick. Absolutely. And while you guys are at it, go ahead and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. That way you'll get all the notifications for when our new episodes release every Tuesday. Boom. So I don't know about you, but with my case, I definitely am going to need uh, some wine for it. So I think why don't we just hop straight into our wines? All right, let's do it. All right, so the wine that I'm going to be doing today actually has a story to go along with it. So, um, story time. <laughs> yes. A couple of weeks ago, I was at home in Edmond in Oklahoma, where we are from. And it was just a Saturday morning. Mom and I were trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And we were like, hey, let's go to the farmer's market. And I'm like, yes. Because, guys, if you have not checked out your local farmer's market, you are totally missing out. Not only can you go there for like all the fruit and veggies you can possibly imagine that are you know, produced by your local farmers. But there are so many people that create like soaps and lotions and also wine. So literally go check it out at least once. 
visit your farmer's market. I promise you, you're going to want to go back. But while we were there, we saw a table. Mind you, this is like 930 in the morning. And they had their wine out and they were doing tastings. And we were like, we're going to do this. Hell yeah, we're going to do this. (laughs) Absolutely. So the wine that I'm going to do on today's episode is one that we tasted and really enjoyed. It's the 2016 Wild Horse Canyon Farms Sangiovese from Luther, Oklahoma. So, Oh! Yeah, and for those of y'all who don't know, that is in central Oklahoma, just off of the historic Route 66. So there's a bit of history that goes into this winery, and... They really do attempt to capture the full flavor and taste of the grapes and fruits that have been enjoyed for countless generations. Now, I said and fruits, and that is because they do have some wines that are on the sweeter side. Um, What I picked is not necessarily a sweet wine. I would call it actually a semi-dry. So it's not semi-sweet, it's semi-dry, which means it's not dry. Anyway, You'll understand when I get into the description, but they also make jams and different spreads. And so like all of these gourmet spreads are made from original ingredients. (laughs) Original. (laughs) Yeah, they're made from ingredients. All of these gourmet spreads are made from choice ingredients with less sugar, more fruit, and pure juice or wine. So some of those fruits that I'm talking about are going into like their jams and whatnot. However, they do have a Cabernet Sauvignon jelly that I really want to get my hands on. They were out of it. But they do have a website if y'all are interested. Unfortunately, you cannot buy the wine on their website, but you can buy their their jams and spreads. It's um, wildhorsecanyonfarms.com. So this wine in particular, it's their Sangiovese. And it's actually an oaked Sangiovese, which is something that I am not used to. So it is garnet in color and medium bodied. When you smell it, it definitely has those aromas of the oak from the barrels. But you also get hints of blackberry, baking spices, and a hit of white pepper. So when you're first smelling this wine, if you feel like you need to sneeze, that's that pepper that you're getting. When you taste it, it is fruit forward. There's a little bit of cloves and cinnamon as well as macerated blackberries. So think of like jammy. So it's not just like a whole blackberry. It's when you have like a big pile of them and you just mash Mm -hmm. them up. That's more so the taste you're getting, as well as a hint of some bright raspberries. The tannins are low. It's a smooth wine with medium acidity. I have already tasted this wine, like I was saying, at the farmer's market, and it is sweeter than most of the Sangioveses that I've tried. So I would say if you're someone who does like more of these like semi-dry or even sweet wines, this would be a good one if you're interested in transitioning into a little more of uh, those dry reds. This can help you make that leap. So it'd also be really, really good. We've got, you know, the holidays are right around the corner. This would be fantastic in a mulled wine because it really is a great base. It's already got the cloves and those cinnamon notes in it. So if you actually add those spices, you know, as well as some brandy or however, mm-hmm. um, you can make some fantastic mulled wine. Also, this wine is good alone. Like you don't have to add to it. You don't need to eat anything with it. If you just want to have a glass of this or a bottle of this, you go right for it. But if you do want to pair it with food, it'd be really good with like a rich tomato sauce, you know, like a bolognese or something like that. 
Also really good with chocolate uh, because you want your wine to be sweeter than your chocolate, which is something I don't know if you know that, but when you're drinking Mm -hmm. wine with a dessert, you want the wine sweeter than what you're eating, which most dessert wines are really sweet. This is not that sweet, but just a nice dark chocolate. This wine has more sweetness. And so they pair together Mm -hmm. perfectly. I had, um, and I know that because I actually tried it. It was like a sea salt almond dark chocolate square. Oh my God, it was phenomenal. And this wine like paired with that really well. Nice. So if you happen to be out, I know they sell um, at the Edmund Farmer's Market. They've been at a couple Tulsa markets as well. So they're out and about in Oklahoma. So if you're in the area, it's again, Wild Horse Canyon Farms. Definitely check them out. So I'm going to get into this. Yeah, well, while you get into that, I will uh, talk about my wine. Yes, what wine did you pick? Mine is the 2016 Con Cannon Petite Syrah from Livermore Valley, California. Ooh, that's a long breath, long word, Mouth- long sentence. Mouthful. There you go. So this winery is nestled amidst the vineyards and rolling hills of the Livermore Valley in California. And it has been widely recognized for crafting these full-flavored, complex, and award-winning wines. It has ocean air pouring through the Golden Gate each afternoon that kind of cools off the sun. And it enables these grapes to develop both these ripe sugars and firm acids that their wines demand. The winery is perfectly positioned geologically, and it's on top of a 600-foot-deep bed of gravelly soil. And because of that, the grapevines have to drive their roots really deep into these mineral-rich deposits, and it keeps the grape and cluster size kind of in moderation. So only, basically only the best of the best grapes survive. Yeah, it's like the survival of the fittest. Absolutely. Only the best grapes survive. Only the best. (laughs) And that's what's in this bottle. Um, So the Petite Syrah has a fantastic depth and character, and it exhibits a rich nose of fresh berry fruit and a very flavorful palette of blackberries, chocolate, mocha, and plums. There's also subtle notes of molasses, cedarwood, and ripe mulberries, that are complemented by the soft, creamy oak tones and this smooth, silky finish. That sounds delicious. And I honestly have not had too, too many Petite Syrahs before. So it's one that when I saw it, I was like, I honestly don't remember if I like them or not. I think I do, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, definitely worth a try. I like them. You are getting into that bottle quickly. Yep. Pouring a Tyler pour. Uh, it's a small <laughs> glass. <laughs> Is it one of uh, your Ikea glasses? No, it's like a Walmart wine glass I've had for a while. Nice. It's one of my backup, backup wine glasses. Oh, sounds like someone needs to do dishes. Yes. <laughs> so I will say the second I opened mine, I just, I really got that face slap of oak and blackberry. Like it is just oh. there. I'm getting a sim- similar face slap as well. Where it's like one of those where I feel like I can almost smell it with the glass not right up to my nose. Yeah. Well, without further ado, I say cheers. Cheers. Ooh. You know, this one is 
I think very similarly to yours, mine's not a sweet wine, but there is an underlying sweetness to it, like much sweeter than I would say like a cab or a zen or anything like that. Definitely. But I, I still wouldn't call that a sweet wine um, or anything you'd want with like dessert, really. But it also has a very pronounced velvetiness that reminds me of like a Merlot. Oh, really? Yeah, I definitely understand what you mean by that velvety. Mine's, I, I don't think I would use the word velvety for this one because of that pepper. It does still have that spice to it, but it is very smooth. Like, the tannins are not, like, making my cheeks pucker or anything like that. Yeah, It's definitely not that kind of wine. It's very similar to a Merlot. Now that you say that, I get Merlot vibes from this. Weird. We both picked wines that are somehow a little bit similar. We did. Um, and I will say I stick with the semi-dry. Not semi-sweet, yeah. but semi-dry for this one. Oh, yeah. Mine would, I would say mine would lie somewhere probably between dry and semi-dry but I was just not expecting any sweetness at all. So I was like, oh. Always a surprise when it's not what you're expecting. All right. Well, we've talked about our topic. Thank you again, Sarah. We've poured our wine. Let's jump into our cases. Let's do it. So I'm going first this week. And the case that I picked is the disappearance of Timothy Pitson. This is one that you may not be familiar with his name, but I think once I get into it, you've probably heard about it in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. The sources that I used, an article called The Chilling Disappearance of Timothy Pitson by Marco Magaritoff from All That's Interesting, Eight Missing Children Cases by Amanda Thomas from Trackamo.com, as well as just an article about Timothy's disappearance from Cincinnati.com. Timothy Pitson was that type of kid that would get along with everyone. He would run down the street, he was always happy, and he was always really fun to be around. And he always was looking for an adventure. You know, he was, in 2011, six years old, just like this ball of energy, ball of life. Just your Mm -hmm. typical amazing six-year-old. James, who was his father, drove Timothy to kindergarten early in the morning to Greenman Elementary School in Aurora, Illinois. And when Timothy jumps out of his dad's car, his dad says, I love you. And Timothy replies with, I love you too, dad, and runs off to the school. And James had no idea that this moment would be his last memory of his son. Oh, Jesus. So that same day, May 11th, 2011... Timothy's mom, Amy Fry Pitson, checked him out from his kindergarten class well before classes were over, and she said that there was a family emergency. There's actually security footage that shows him leaving the school around 8.30 a.m. So when I say she got him early, like, she really got him early. So, like, not long after, I mean, I don't know when his school started, but it can't be that long after school started. No, he was there maybe an hour. And she told him that they were going on a road trip together. That's not a good sign. Later that day, when James came to pick Timothy up from school, he was told by the staff that he was picked up by his mom. James had no idea Timothy had left the school. So obviously, we've already got some red flags everywhere. Yeah. James checked the house and Amy's work, and he repeatedly called her phone, but it kept going straight to voicemail. 
So that next morning on May 12th, James reported the two of them missing. Amy never called James back, but she did call her mom. She told her mom that she and Timothy were fine and that they'd be home in a day or two, that she just she just needed some space. So something was going on and she just needed some time away. She also called James's brother, which I think is very interesting. Um, yeah. I couldn't find anything about what type of relationship they had, but this was probably a very interesting call for his brother to receive. I mean, but I think there are definitely times when you have um, a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law that you're super close to that's like, that's basically also your sibling. So I can see it, especially if she didn't have siblings of her own or close siblings of her own. So I don't know, but God. Yeah. So she calls James's brother and tells him that everything is fine, but says, Timothy belongs to me. Oh, fuck no. Yeah. So while friends and family are frantically searching for Amy and Timothy, they're out having a vacation of sorts. They are going to the zoo in Chicago. Um, They hop into a water park in Gurney, Illinois. Sorry, guys, if I'm saying that wrong. It's G-U-R-N-E-E. Gurn. Maybe that's it. But they go to the water park and then also a resort in Wisconsin. So they really are bouncing around. And surveillance footage shows them walking hand in hand in all of these places. Well, because he's six, you said, right? Yeah, he's six years old. So, I mean, I can see it being very easy for her to be like, oh, we're just going on vacation. And being like, uh, shit, yes. Early vacation. It's, well, I guess he's in kindergarten, so he doesn't really know summer vacation yet. But he's like, yeah, family vacation. Hell yeah. Totally. Why not? He's having a good time. His mom's taking him to all these places. But three days later, things took a major shift. Amy's body was discovered in a Rockford, Illinois hotel room of an apparent suicide. Her wrists had been slit. Ooh. However, Timothy was nowhere to be found. And James shared that Amy had been struggling with depression, but he believed that she would never do anything to hurt her own son. Yeah. They found a suicide note in the hotel room, and it's believed that Amy wrote it. It said that Timothy was safe and that he was with people who would love and care for him, but ended with a very chilling and cryptic sentence you will never find him oh god so this mysterious disappearance made its first national waves shortly after the disappearance happened with a 2020 segment and then also an article in people additionally all of the footage from surveillance cameras captivated people across the country this was national news In one of the surveillance cameras, it showed a young boy playing with a toy truck, walking alongside his mother at resorts in Wisconsin and in the suburbs of Illinois. The last known sighting occurred just as they left a Wisconsin water park on May 13th, so just two days after he went missing. Mm -hmm. And this was shortly before his mother checked into the Rockford Hotel, which is where her body would later be found. Shortly after 8 p.m. on that same night... Amy was spotted on a surveillance camera video at a grocery store in Rockford, Illinois, but she was completely alone. She then checked him into the hotel room around 11.15 p.m. that night. So I don't know if Timothy was in the car or what. Oh, but at 11.15, she checked Timothy into the hotel. I don't know. I don't know if Uh, when Timothy left her. Oh, oh, so it could have, she could have, like, dropped Timothy off. Somewhere. People. 
and then gone to the grocery store and stuff. Oh. Yeah, because he was last seen on surveillance when they were leaving the water park. She was last seen around 8 p.m. in the grocery store. And then records show she checked into the hotel at 11.15 p.m. So I'd make that same assumption that Timothy went missing somewhere in between water park and grocery store. The next morning is when a housekeeper walked in and found her body. Police would later say that she had self-inflicted cuts on her neck and wrists, so it wasn't wasn't just her wrists, and a lethal dose of drugs in her system. So she was making sure that she was going to die. Yeah. She was only 42 years old. Authorities conducted a very thorough investigation. They pulled cell phone records and emails, combed over them, Reported sightings were always followed up on, and thousands of leads were analyzed and assessed. And in the early days of Timothy's disappearance, James was terrified at the potential outcomes, but, you know, he's saying he's scared, but he was retaining a semblance of optimism, just really hoping that his son was going to come home. Timothy was intelligent, he was really resourceful, and James just knew he would eventually be found. There are some indications that Timothy's disappearance was planned. Amy's cell phone record showed one of her last calls pinged off a cell phone tower near Sterling, Illinois. And using toll records, police found that Amy had made two trips to that area in the months prior. So something's going on. and Something's in Sterling. Something's in Sterling. Maybe someone is in Sterling. But there's a connection going on there. However, despite all of their massive efforts and the intense publicity that was going on in the search for Timothy, the case got cold pretty quick. In 2012, police released more surveillance footage that helped map out Amy's final moves, so they're getting more information. And in 2013, her cell phone was turned on. So as it, oh. as it turns out, a woman had found a cell phone on the side of the roads in Illinois in 2011, but... She had no idea it was significant. She found a phone. She picks it up and she puts it on a shelf for two years. Then she ends up giving it to her brother when he needed a new phone. And she's like, oh, hey, I've got an extra phone. When he turns it on, a family friend recognized some of the names in the contact list. So it was someone that had to have been in that first, like, in Aurora where they were from. Yeah. So, you know, they turned the phone into the police, but ultimately nothing came of it. Now fast forward to this year, on April 3rd, 2019. The Sharonville, Ohio police filed a report that sparked off the very first promising trace of Timothy in years. So it's been about eight years at this point since he disappeared. And the police report stated that dispatchers in Kentucky said a 14-year-old boy who claimed to be Timothy Pitson, ran off and dashed over a bridge that was over the Ohio River and into Kentucky. Bystanders initially thought that he was trying to steal a car until they noticed all of these bruises and abrasions covering his face. He identified himself as Timothy Pitson and said that he'd been held captive for years. He had been traded and passed around and that all he wanted to do was go home. Using the name Timothy Pitson alone meant that it could actually be him. And so they immediately started looking into it. The timeline fit. Timothy would now match this, you know, at the time, unidentified teenager's age. They're about 14 years old. So this could be Timothy. 
This teenager described his kidnappers to the Ohio police as two white men. One was wearing a Mountain Dew t-shirt, jeans, and had black curly hair and a spiderweb tattoo on his neck, which is, I mean, that's a major identifier there. Yeah. The other was a short guy who had a snake tattoo on his arm. They drove a Ford SUV with Wisconsin plates. The teenager said that the two men and him had been staying at a Red Roof Inn hotel, but he wasn't sure which one or where it was. The Sharonville police swept the local Red Roof Inn and motels in the area, and they didn't find anything. They did eventually call Pitson's grandmother, Elena Anderson, and at this point, she's really hesitating to comment on this matter. She really wants to make sure that this teenager is actually her missing grandson before she really puts a lot of faith in it, you know? Uh, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, this, what they thought was a very promising lead, was another instance of false hope. The teenager who claimed to be Timothy Pitson was actually a 24-year-old man, as was evidenced through his DNA when they tested it. The FBI in Louisville discovered that this teen was actually Brian Michael Reaney of Newport, Kentucky, and he did have bruises and abrasions all over his face, and he stated that he was Timothy Pitson, but all of these assertions were completely baseless. Like, he didn't, he wasn't him. And as it stands, no further details have been released as to why he attempted to assume a false identity um, or they haven't been uncovered yet. He's been charged with impersonating a long missing child and his case is on hold right now in the federal court. So he, you know, they were trying to bring this case forward this summer, but it's currently on hold. So we don't really have any details as to why he did what he did. But yeah, to this day, Timothy Pitson is still missing. He would be about 14 years old, and they have done one of the digital, like, age progression things, Mm -hmm. so you can find photos of what he could look like. So if you are in the Illinois, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, all of that, you know, in the, the Midwest. The Midwest. If you're in that area, keep your eyes peeled, hop online and look up his photo from when he was six and the photo of what he could look like now. And just keep your eyes peeled. You never know when you might be the person to help um, solve this case. And there's really just so little information as to what happened, what was Amy doing, why she did what she did, where she could have possibly taken Timothy whether he's alive or not, I mean, we hope that he is, but we just really don't know a lot. I mean, I remember earlier this year when the news was reporting that they think they found him, and then I kind of kept with the story when it was revealed that, you know, this was a false identity, it was not actually Timothy, and I, I don't know if that guy thought it would he could get attention or you know was doing it maliciously or if he had a mental illness or had suffered damage and like honestly thought that that's who he was yeah i I don't know i don't either i i really don't and i'm just i'm hurting so much for james could you imagine going to pick up your child and finding out that your wife picked them up and then all of this happening like i just hope that he is somewhere, maybe Amy, I don't know, had 
pen pals or something and was able to convince them that she was in a bad situation and not to believe the things they're going to hear about her or something. Who knows? And that they honestly think they are protecting Timothy to this day and treating him well. I don't know. That's what my hope is. I really want him to be alive and well and being taken care of. And I would love for James to see him again. But the most important part is that he's alive and being taken care of. Yeah. I have this image in my mind that like this older grandparent-esque couple is like, he like he's on a farm with them. So they're not, they're not really up to date with the news and all the stuff. And that they just truly believe that whatever Amy told them is true. And again, that he's growing up being a happy teenager. Again, like I said, if you're in the Midwest, keep your eyes peeled. Absolutely. So, like I said, I I really, I really hate cases where children are the victims. And I'm glad I have plenty of wine to get through your case. Yeah, because mine is, mine's a doozy. And mine is the case that Sarah suggested to us when she suggested the topic. And mine is the case of the murder of John Bonet Ramsey. Which is one I know you've been wanting to do for a long time. So this, mm-hmm. Sarah, thank you. You gave us the perfect reason to do this. Yes. And there's just so, we. I mean, everyone has so many thoughts and opinions and oh, yeah. theories about this case. To me, the murder of John Bonet Ramsey is a case that is almost in a league of its own, up there with the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, like, as far as how much it captivated the U.S. And absolutely was something that everyone knew about, everyone had an opinion on, and everyone felt like they were personally involved in. I would say that's a good... That's a good description because it was everywhere. And to this day, it's still everywhere. If there's ever anything released about John Bonet, like a new documentary, a new anything, it's all over the place. Well, John Bonet was, she was everyone's niece or granddaughter or little sister or something. Yeah. But the sources I used for this case were Wikipedia. The article, The Death of John Bonet Ramsey. Biography, the article, just John Bonet Ramsey. And then Crime Museum, the article, John Bonet Ramsey. So, John Bonet was born in 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia. And she was the youngest of two kids to Patsy and John Ramsey. She had an older brother named Burke. And in 1996, She was enrolled in kindergarten at the High Peaks Elementary School and in Boulder, Colorado, where the family then lived. She was this very outgoing Southern girl who loved to be the center of attention. By the age of six, she'd already won multiple beauty pageant titles, and she was just known for this bouncy blonde hair, her poised smile, and these glittery costumes. And I feel like... Everyone knows exactly what she looks like as far as her pageant photos, but I feel like it's so rare to see a photo of her when she's not made up. Um, And I almost feel like JonBenet 
really brought pageantry to the forefront. I don't know. Maybe it's because I was younger when this happened, but I feel like after this happened, then all, I mean, years later, we've got like toddlers and tiaras and like all of these shows, dance moms, all of this that came out and it, it shone more light on this pageantry life. And I'm not against it by any means, I just think it's interesting when it's with very, very young children. That's where I start to have somewhat of an issue with it because there are a lot of opinions, but I really just want to say, like, it's so rare to see a photo of her just being a little girl. Oh, 100%. And I personally am really against a lot of the pageant, the child beauty, the basically the child competition stuff. I think there's a huge difference between you know, have your kid and they're like, mom, I want to be a dancer. You're like, hell yes, I'm here to support you. And then there's another between the stereotypical like pageant parents that are pushing this dream on their children and pushing their kids to go through all of this and kind of really taking away so much of their childhood so they can be this competitor. But I also know that you have to look at it through many lenses because in one way, you can be disgusted by how child beauty pageants are run, and then you're cheering on young kids who are going to go compete in the Olympics. Because in a lot of ways, that kind of either drive the child has or drive that is being forced on the child is can be very similar in both ways. I agree. And that's what I was going to say. There's a difference in whether it's the child's dream or the parent's dream. And to yeah. me, that can skew my view of it. But I think that's a really smart comparison comparing it to sports because in its own way it is a type of sport. So Absolutely. And I think that pageants and these competitions that surround girls or feminine things are so much more looked down upon than something like sports. And it's because of sexism and the patriarchal society we live in. Because I remember in college, uh, me and my friend and her roommate, we watched Dance Moms all the time. And there's definitely performers on there that are like, this is my dream. I want to do this. And the moms are like, yes, honey, I will support you however you want. You just let me know. Mama's here for you. And then there's other parents that are like, you sit the fuck down and stop crying. You're going to win this. You're going to be what I could never be kind of shit. And it's like, what the fuck? But you don't hear about the kind of visceral, oh, you know, everyone who's involved in that is horrible. You don't hear that kind of visceral reaction to, uh, you know, kids that are swimming from the age of four and right. in swimming competitions or in these sports. So that that is one kind of thing. I have I do have a problem with it when it is being forced upon children and they don't get to do things that they want to do. Yeah. But I definitely think, you know, like you said, you there is a big difference when it's something the child really does enjoy. Agreed. So John Bonet's dad was a multimillionaire businessman, and her mom was a former beauty queen herself. She was Miss West Virginia in 1977, and they just doted on their daughter in every way they could. They had this big, gorgeous home that was just filled with everything John Bonet needed to live a comfortable life. So on the morning of December 26, 
1996, just the day after Christmas, John Bonet's mom, Patsy, called the police after she found a three-page ransom note on the stairs in the house, and it was demanding $118,000 for her daughter's safe return. Such a random number. Well, the, the number's important. And I'll, I'll get into that in a sec. Yeah. And I know you know that. I, I know. But I just um, had to point it out because it's so random when you when you it hear it. It is so random. It's like ransom note, 118,000. I'm like, why not 100 or 2 or 150? Who, or who even picks 118? Yeah. Who picks 118? Yeah. Like, it's so specific that I think that tipped off a lot of people and there are connections. But when she saw this note, that's when she realized her daughter was missing. Because she ran to John Bonet's room and she's not there. And then she's like, oh, shit, this is real. Yeah. So she calls the police. And John Bonet's dad, John, pointed out to police when they got there that this amount was identical to the Christmas bonus that he'd received. Oh my god, and wait, he actually is the one that pointed it out to the police? Yeah, because he sees the number and he's like, uh, hold the fuck on, I just saw a check that had that number. So he's like, this had to be someone who would know that information, who knows how much my bonus check would be. But also, side note, his bonus check is $118,000 for his Christmas bonus. I mean, you said he's a multimillionaire, so are you surprised? No, just that's just so much money. I've received a Christmas bonus once, and it was like $400, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And it was. It was. But, $400 <laughs> is still really cool. But damn, 118000 I know. So investigators looked into a bunch of different theories behind what this dollar amount meant. So they considered employees that were at, um, you know, this company that could have known about his prior bonus, which is crazy. I'm just imagining them busting up into, like, the HR department. Because I don't know who else would know other than, like, his boss and HR, but... HR and, like, finance. Yeah. They also looked at the possibility that it referenced Psalm 118, and they spoke to different religious leaders about, like, could this be a thing? What is Psalm 118? I'm obviously not a Bible scholar or anything, but it really goes along the lines of mercy and God, like giving thanks to God, um, his mercy, and just expressing gratitude, joy, and praise for like his gifts. So I don't really, see, I don't really see how it could be connected other than it possibly being very tongue in cheek. Maybe like they're saying, "Gift us this." Like, well, they're saying like, "Now we'll really show you how to express gratitude for what you have now that it's gone," or something. But that, oh. to, that to me, that doesn't really go along with what no. I get from the psalm. So I don't know. Interesting. Also, this ransom note, one of the curious things about it, other than just the dollar amount, was it was long. A three-page ransom note's a lot. It is. You would think actually like half a page. Because what yeah, else do you have to say? I know. We have them. Here's what we want. Give it to us in this time. Don't call the police. Like, I, I don't know. Make it a bullet point list. But it was three pages. And the FBI told police that that was very unusual, and it was even more unusual that this three-page note had been written at the crime scene. So it's not something that they wrote before and brought. 
it was something that they kidnapped her and then wrote it at the house. And it's also three pages, so it took them a hot second to write. So... So dumb criminals. Yeah. It's just very suspicious. So the police initially believed that the note was staged because it also yeah. didn't have any fingerprints on it other than Patsy's and the authorities who'd handle it. Granted, to me, that's not... I mean, people wear gloves when they kidnap. So I'm like, okay. Yeah, that's not too telling. More so, the length is really suspicious. Yeah. And of course, Patsy's fingerprints are going to be on it. She's like, yeah, it's I found house. this and picked it up and read it. Right. Like, But they also found that not only this note, but a practice note had been written on a pen and a pad of paper that was at the house. So the kidnappers, whoever did this to write the note, like took their time and were not concerned about someone getting caught, which is not, to me, very typical. If you're kidnapping someone, you want to get in and out as quickly as possible. You're not going to sit there and write a note. Ooh, we messed up. Let's write a new one. Like, Especially mm. if you're writing a three-page note. Like, honestly, what most people would do in a hurry if they make a mistake is scratch it out and keep going. You're not going to... Mm-hmm. It's not a freaking essay. You don't have to do drafts of it. Also, if yeah. you're not sure of what you want to say, you're going to write it beforehand so it's exactly what you want. Yeah, there's a lot of suspicion exactly. around this whole ransom letter. Yeah. So the only people that were known to be at the house that night were the immediate family. So Patsy and John, and then John Bonet's brother, Burke. Right. I mean, it was Christmas. Yeah. So it was just the four of them. It was just the family was at the house that night. So, this ransom note contained specific instructions not to contact police or friends, but when Patsy saw it at 5.52 in the morning, she immediately called police. Which, to be fair, Which, I I mean, yeah. Yeah. You, you uh, literally call the police and you say, hey, I was told not to reach out to you, but my fucking kid's missing. Exactly. Be discreet. And she also called family and friends because she's freaking out. Naturally. Her daughter's been kidnapped. I, I So, 100%. Two police officers responded to the call, and they got to the house within three minutes. Really fast. Which is fast. And they did a very quick cursory search of the house, but they didn't find any signs of forced entry. That's really quick, especially day after Christmas. I'm really impressed. Yeah. So John made arrangements to pay the ransom, and at this time, a forensics team is dispatched to the house, and... Because they initially believed that she'd been kidnapped and kidnapped from her room, her bedroom was the only room in the house that was cordoned off to prevent contamination. No precautions were taken to prevent contamination of evidence that could be found in the rest of the house. Which is so frustrating because the kidnappers supposedly broke into the entire house, not not just her bedroom. Because if they I know. if they had to write the ransom note, they obviously had to walk around the house to find what they needed to do that. Yeah, and I don't think the pad of paper they wrote it on was in her bedroom. I don't think so either. Also at this time, friends are coming over, the family's minister comes to the house, you know, to support the family, and victim advocates are also coming to the scene. So there's a lot of visitors here, and they're trying to help out, trying to help the family. So they're doing things like cleaning the kitchen, doing things that could be destroying evidence. Are these people just dumb? This was the 90s, right? Well, it's the 90s, and the police have only said, oh, you know, 
don't do anything in the bedroom. The rest of the house is fine. This is such a botched investigation. It's one of the things that drives me crazy about this case. Same. I didn't realize they had friends coming over cleaning the kitchen. Yeah. Like, that just makes me cringe. Yeah. Oh, my God. Think about if you were that person that cleaned the kitchen and later found out what you could have done. Oh, oh, yeah. Because you were just doing that out of the kindness of your heart because it was one of the things you knew to do. Like, this family needs help. Let me take this off their hands. So it was like all of these good intentions. And it's like, oh, no. I think that's the worst part is that these people coming over are just doing what they can to help. And they think they're... They're like, yeah, I mean, like, they don't need to be focused on having, you know, dirty dishes and stuff. I'm going to clean the kitchen. Yeah. And I'm going to just help them out so they can talk to the minister and focus on healing or whatever they need. Yep. I mean, it's it, it's the same mindset of, you know, when something happens to a friend or a neighbor and you bring over food. Absolutely. It's the same, I mean, it, same mentality. Same thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, they don't need to be worried about cooking or thinking about that. Here, let me do this for them. So at 8 a.m. that morning, a detective with the Boulder police arrived with the goal of awaiting for the kidnappers' instructions. Because they were setting up, they're like, okay, we're going to pay the ransom. And we're going to, like, listen in. We're going to do it. But there was never any attempt made to claim the money. No one ever tried to collect their money. No, the 118000 they asked for, no one ever came for it. And at this point, JonBenet's still missing. Yes. So at 1 p.m., one of the detectives asked John and a family friend, Fleet White, to search the house and just see if anything seemed amiss, anything that they would notice that the police might not kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So things put back in different areas or whatever. Which is a really valid question. Oh, Yeah. And they started their search. They were going to go bottom to top and started their search in the basement. And at this point, no one had really searched the basement. I think a police officer had like walked down, looked a little bit and not opened any doors or anything and just gone back up. Because, of course, they're a rich ass family. This is a basement with multiple rooms. Not all of them had been searched. I didn't realize basements could have more than one room. I mean, I know they can. Obviously, think about people who use downstairs as like, here's a bedroom and a bathroom and a living room. But I've always pictured in my head more like this like wine cellar that's like one room, not a basement with multiple rooms. Yeah. When they're searching the basement, John opens a latched door and he found his daughter's body in one of the rooms. Her mouth was covered with duct tape. A nylon cord was wrapped around her wrists and neck, and her torso was covered by a white blanket. What a horrific way to find your child. I I honestly cannot think of something worse. No, me either. So John picked up her body and took her upstairs, and when she was moved, the crime scene was further contaminated. Yeah. And some critical forensic evidence was disturbed for the forensics team that finally came down but i in this case can there's no part of me that can blame john he he found his daughter's body he's not going to be like hey everyone look no or call for the police he's gonna he's gonna pick his daughter up absolutely like yeah that is such a human reaction that i can't fault him for it a human parent emotional 
all of all of the above. JonBenet's autopsy revealed that she'd been killed by strangulation and by a skull fracture, and the official cause of death was asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. In her autopsy, there was no evidence of conventional rape, but sexual assault couldn't be ruled out. So, although no semen was found, there was evidence that there had been some kind of vaginal injury, and at the time of the autopsy, the pathologist recorded that it appeared her vaginal area had been wiped with some kind of cloth. Her death was ruled a homicide. So, the garrote around JonBenet's neck was made from a length of nylon cord, and also the broken handle of a paintbrush. So, that was tied around her neck, and that had been what was used to strangle her. Part of the bristle end of the paintbrush was found in a tub that contained Patsy's art supplies, but the bottom third of the brush was never found. That's weird. Unless maybe she happened to just have a broken brush part in there. That's not unheard of. No, I mean, people break uh, paintbrushes all the time. It could have been something that she had a broken paintbrush in there, and whoever did this just grabbed the handle piece exactly. that was broken off. And used and, it. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. The coroner also found what was believed to be pineapple in her stomach. And her parents said that they don't remember giving her any pineapple the night that she died. But there was a bowl of pineapple in the kitchen that had her nine-year-old brother Burke's fingerprints all over it. But... Because time can't be attributed to fingerprints, it didn't mean a ton. Right. Really. Right. So it's like, yeah, his fingerprints were on there, but it's, again, he lives there and, hey, sometimes we don't wash things as properly as we should. Yeah. Or maybe he got himself some pineapple and, I don't know, she found some, ate some, I don't know. Yeah. That's totally more likely than the washing part. Um, Yeah. Because the Ramseys maintained that Burke was in his room all night asleep, and there really wasn't much physical evidence to say otherwise. So there's really, there's two popular theories in this case. There's the family theory and the intruder theory. The initial investigation focused heavily on the Ramsey family for many reasons. Yeah. The police felt that this ransom note was staged because, again, it was very long. It had been written using pen and paper that was from their house. And because it demanded the exact amount of money that John had received in his Christmas bonus. Exactly. And it's just like, those are, that's all very suspicious. Those are the red flags that we have been alluding to because that ransom note really seems fake. Like, there's no part of that ransom note that is believable. No. It's almost like they googled how to write a ransom note to make sure they put all of the things in there and then got like, you know, it's actually, I'm going to re-say what I was trying to say. It's like when you lie about something, the more detail you give, the more it seems like a lie. Oh, yeah. You have to be vague. Lying 101. They don't need all the information. Be vague. That's today's lesson. Well, I wasn't 
there, I was actually walking uh, down this street next to the Italian restaurant. I really want to eat there. It has like some really good fettuccine alfredo. And um, I was going to buy some new shoes, but I didn't, um, I didn't bring my wallet. So that's, I didn't have it with me. So I couldn't get the shoes I wanted. And it's like, okay, bitch, I, that's not what I asked. Yeah. You just said, did I see you at no. Starbucks? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, honestly, don't lie. There's very little need for it in the world. But if you do, no, but- like, be vague, people, come on. Be vague and always throw in a grain of truth or something that's going to get you a little bit in trouble, but not a ton in trouble. Like, for example, not that I ever did this, but imagine, I don't know, being a teenager and, um, I don't know, getting caught going to a party and having to lie about that. You know, don't just be like, no, I was in my room. Be like, no, I didn't go to a party. I just I snuck out and went to Blake's house or whatever. I don't know. So something that's like, oh, that's not as big of a deal, but because they're not going to press anymore. Just by the way. And that's Liar Liar 102. That's the advanced course. Yes. 201, actually. It's the sophomore level course. Got it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But no, don't lie because honestly, like, what's the point? (laughs) You're pretty much going to get caught. So, like, why waste your breath? And there's so little that as an adult, that actually matters enough to lie about. It's true. I think that's the thing I've realized as I grow up more. It's like, honestly, I don't even care enough to lie. Well, and also, if you really do feel the need to lie, it means you're probably doing something you shouldn't be doing. So maybe that's your moment to be like, "Mm, I should take a step back and actually, like, look at this holistically. Exactly. Just don't lie, people. True. Because then someone's going to think you murdered someone. Exactly. Another thing that made police really suspicious of the Ramses was they were reluctant to cooperate with police. And they would later say that this is because they feared the police wouldn't actually conduct a full investigation and would just look at them because they were easy suspects, which is not wrong. I mean, it's the not. police definitely only looked at them at first, really. And as much as they didn't cooperate with police, all three of them were questioned by investigators and did submit handwriting samples to compare to the ransom letter. Both John and Burke were cleared of suspicion in writing the note, but Patsy couldn't be conclusively cleared, and a lot of media attention was put on that. Wasn't part of it the handwriting? That it was very similar to hers? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it couldn't... She couldn't be cleared from it, but there were further investigations put in that couldn't link her to it right they were like we can't a hundred percent disprove it wasn't you but there's no part that we can say like oh this part of the letter is similar enough that it had to be you or something like that right right so one theory is that patsy struck john benet in a fit of rage after a bedwetting episode and then strangled her to cover up what had happened after thinking she was already dead But one of the things about this is that Patsy never had any kind of history of uncontrolled anger. And Burke, JonBenet's brother, would later say, we didn't get spanked. Nothing of the sort. Nothing close. Nothing near laying a finger on us, let alone killing your child. Yeah, that seems far-fetched. Yeah. And so that, I'm like, hmm. And it also is another one of those things that goes into, like, 
how both easy and difficult it is to kill someone. I mean, you know, yes, people get struck and die all the time, but I feel like you would have to see a lot more evidence and stuff. I don't know. Right. I, I feel like if you, if Patsy had struck her hard enough to kill her, you would see bruising on Patsy's hand or something. There would be some more evidence pointing towards her, I would think. Yeah. In this theory, the strangulation was kind of a red herring to conceal the other parts of the assault and killing. Right. So Burke, John Bonet's older brother, who was nine at the time, was interviewed by investigators at least three times. And the first two interviews didn't really raise any concerns about him. And a review by a child psychologist stated that it appeared the Ramses had a healthy, caring family relationship. In 1998, the Boulder police chief said during an interview that Burke Ramsey was not involved in the killing of his sister. And in May of 1999, the Boulder County District's Attorney Office reiterated that Burke was not a suspect, and the investigators never considered him a suspect. Well, maybe that's a problem. Shouldn't everyone in that house be considered a suspect? I absolutely think so. Like, like mom, dad, brother should all be suspects because this is, spoiler alert, unsolved. Everyone knows that. But like, everyone should be a suspect. I mean, by proximity, you should be a suspect and it should be looked into. I think the next door neighbors should have been on the list of suspects because of proximity and stuff. I mean, come on. To say that someone is never even considered a suspect, to me, I'm like, "Mm, well, then what did you miss? Yeah. Where you focused so much on mom and dad that you may have missed something else. So the media immediately focused on John Bonet's parents, and they spent years under the harsh limelight of the public eye. In 1999, a Colorado grand jury voted to indict the Ramses on child endangerment and obstruction of a murder investigation. The prosecutor felt that the evidence did not meet the beyond a reasonable doubt standard and declined to prosecute them. So John Bonet's parents were never officially named as suspects in the murder. Yeah, always just speculative. Yeah. The intruder theory, on the other hand, does have quite a bit of physical evidence that supports it. There was a boot print that was found next to John Bonet's body that didn't belong to anyone in the family. Oh. And there was also a broken window in the basement, which was believed to be the most likely point of entry for an intruder. Which, granted, that tells me the police did not do a thorough investigation if there was a broken window and they were like, doesn't look like there's any forced entry. Oh, no. I think they looked at like the front door and back door and were like, no, the locks here are good. Don't know what happened. Well, and not trying to speak ill of the police, but this again was day after Christmas, so it's not like your like frontline men are coming in. Oh, I mean, agreed. It's definitely third string for all you football fans out there. Third string came out on the December twenty sixth to investigate this, which is why, I mean, and honestly, you learn things with experience, and I guarantee these officers learned a lot out of this case, 
Because it's like, they let too many people in to contaminate the crime scene. They didn't do a thorough investigation of entry or not. I mean, if there was a freaking broken window, why wasn't that talked about? Well, the broken window has been criticized a lot because of a couple things. So there was an intact cobweb in the window. And the steel grate that covered the window also had undisturbed cobwebs and the foliage around the grate had been undisturbed there were also cobwebs in the tracks of various windows and dust and debris was still on the sills so maybe it was broken from the outside but if someone is coming in through that they're gonna disturb all of that that is a really good point so yeah if it was a staged scene they maybe like what threw a rock in through the window to break it from the outside, but maybe threw a rock in. Maybe used I don't know. Probably John. I assume he's rich, so he golfed. Maybe used one of his golf clubs to bust the window open, but not actually go through it. You know, no one actually went in through it. I don't know. So that's that's one thing that I'm like, mm, that's that's suspicious, but. Additionally, in support of the intruder claim, is the fact that there was DNA from drops of blood from an unknown male oh. that were found on John Bonet's underwear. The floors of the the Ramsey house were also heavily carpeted, so that did make it plausible that someone could have gone up to John Bonet's room, gotten her, and then walked her into the basement without waking anyone up. No footsteps. So some early suspects included a neighbor, Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus. There was a former housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh, and a man named Michael Helgoth, who died of an apparent suicide shortly after John Bonet's death. And hundreds of DNA tests were performed to find a match to the DNA that was recovered from her. But there weren't any matches. It was determined that there had been more than a hundred burglaries in the Ramsey's neighborhood in the months before John Bonet's murder, and there were 38 registered sex offenders living within a two-mile radius of their home, which is horrifying. That's a lot. And if you want to be terrified of where you live, uh, there's public like websites and stuff that you can look up and i think if you google like sex offenders near me a bunch will i know there's one website that oprah uh pushed like a couple years ago but anyway you google that and there are a bunch of them you can plug in your address and it's kind of horrifying how many uh dots just pop up and you can see people their mugshots, uh what they did and it's all your neighbors So, Brittany and I just took a little bit of a break to actually use the websites I just mentioned and look at sex offenders in our area. So disturbed. And, uh, yeah. So, um, honestly, when it said there's 38 uh, sex offenders living within a two-mile radius of her, I was like, that is so many, that's horrifying. There is a lot more near where I live, so... Uh, don't look up your address and those around you unless you really want to know, because I promise you, you really don't want to know. 
But honestly, if it is something that you are curious about, I am glad the information is available. I, like, I agree. It, no, it's not fun information to find. No, it's not something we all really want to know. But if you need to know, like if you're moving into that an area true. and you have two small children, one small child, no small children, like just sometimes you need to look that stuff up. That is true. That is very true. Um, Another, uh, I don't know, safety tip is uh, if you live next to a school, um, there's, I think it's a thousand feet. It might be more than that. I feel like a thousand feet's not that long. Anyway, uh, sex offenders can't live within a certain distance of schools. Yeah. So that might be a reason to pick a neighborhood with a school in it. I don't know. Agreed. So in 2001, the former Boulder County prosecutor and the Boulder County Sheriff's detective said that there should be a much more aggressive investigation into this intruder theory. Yeah, it doesn't seem like much has been done. One of the most famous suspects in this case was John Carr. He was arrested in 2006 when he confessed to killing John Bonet by accident after he had drugged and sexually assaulted her. However, Carr was eventually dismissed as a suspect after it was revealed that no drugs had been found in John Bonet's system, police could not confirm he was in Boulder at the time, and his DNA didn't match any of the samples that they'd found. And also, in his confession, he had provided only basic facts which were known to the public at the time and failed to provide any convincing details. Yeah. So he's just this fucked up guy trying to, I don't know, get famous or something from this. I don't know. Honestly, that I think happens more often than we realize that someone will yeah. falsely confess to something or pretend they did something they didn't, which is the same as falsely confessing. But like, no, I think it happens. I don't get it. I think but it, it does. does. And it, honestly, it's one of the reasons why I'm glad that police don't just accept a confession, that there needs to be hard evidence behind it, too. Because otherwise, there'd be a lot of people who'd done some horrible things still walking around. Agreed. Because others had confessed. Yeah. So, much of the recent investigation into this case revolves around the DNA profiles that were developed from the sample found in her underwear, as well as the touch DNA from her long johns. And touch DNA is DNA left behind from skin cells. So, if you, like, touch something... And the profile from her underwear was entered into CODIS, which is the National DNA Database, in 2003. But so far, no matches have been identified. In 2010, the case was officially reopened with a renewed focus on these DNA samples. And further testing has been conducted on them, and experts now believe that the sample is actually from two individuals, rather than just one person. In 2016, it was announced that the DNA would be sent to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to be tested using some more modern methods, and authorities hope that they're going to get an even stronger DNA profile from the killer. This is another case that I hadn't really thought about it before doing this research, but is this something that's going to be solved through familial DNA? There's... Uh, similar to Golden State. There's just so many possibilities with familial DNA. There are. There are. Well, and it's one of those things that, just in case anyone didn't know this, and I know we've talked about it, but just to reiterate, 
I, okay, so personally, I 100% support being in the system. Like, anyone in my family, like, go right ahead. But where I'm going is if anyone in your family line agrees to have their DNA in the system, the whole family is. So at this point, Mm -hmm. like, honestly, how, I mean, with how popular these kits are and whatnot, I'm sure a majority of the United States DNA is in that database. I agree. Because it, and and the further you get down, I know it's like harder to pinpoint because there's less and less and less of a connection, but it's still there. But yeah, in case you didn't know that, when you say, yes, it's cool for my DNA to be in the system, you're saying yes for like your siblings, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, like your entire family. Yeah. Yeah. Because if your DNA's in there and your sibling does a crime, they'll be able to be like, oh, well... Britney's DNA is in here, and that's a whatever percent match. We can see it's like a sibling match, so it's one or two people. Yeah, well, and it's, so it's one of those things that it's worth asking your family. Although, if you have suspicions, like, go for it. But if you have nothing to worry about, like, I, you're going to be fine. But just know it is a rights thing. Like, your DNA is very personal. So I just, I advise... Chatting with your family well, I think, before you say yes. I think that's one of the big issues that most people have with it, is that it's not really just you saying yes for you. It's you saying yes for a ton of other people who've not consented to it. Yeah. So it, you know, it can definitely get sticky. And I think there's definitely arguments on both sides. There are. Because uh, typically I am always on the side of, like my privacy is important. Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of people are more on the side of like, well, if you have nothing to hide, why are you worried? And I'm like, "Mm, my privacy is important. This is one of those cases, though, where I'm like, uh, you know, I don't know. Because it's not like any of the DNA samples that are given are going to be something that is substantial enough to plant or do anything like that. So, you know, having that makeup just in a database, it's like, okay, whatever. But again, it is still making that decision for a bunch of other people who haven't been able to consent to it. It, It's a sticky situation. It is. And I just wanted to bring it up so people are aware um, of the decision they're making. And honestly, if you're all for it, then go for it. I'm not telling you not to. I just want you to know what that decision means. Yeah, I know personally, whenever I get around to ordering one of the tests, if it's one that is at, that I get asked, like, can this be open for law enforcement? I'm going to say yeah. I mean, I am like, too. I don't. I am too. So sorry, Brittany, if your long hidden murder conviction comes to light because I spit in a tube, but I really want to see what percentage Italian I am. Well, if I was convicted of murder, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be very hidden. Okay, well, whatever you're... <laughs> you're the secret murder that you did that you haven't told anyone about. Well, um, no. But seriously, I would too. Like, I would say yes, because I am all about if someone has done something, then they need to own up to what they've done, family or not. Yeah, 100% agree. In 2016, CBS aired a documentary, The Case of John Benet Ramsey which implied that her then nine-year-old brother, Burke, was the killer. And 
This was despite the fact that he had been cleared by the DNA evidence that many people say prove the existence of an intruder. Right. And Burke filed a $750 million lawsuit against CBS for defamation. And in 2019, so this year, the case was settled. And while the terms of that settlement were not disclosed, his lawyer did say the case was amicably resolved to the satisfaction of all parties. So so he got not some 750, money. but he got some money. Yep. Which, one thing... I have to wonder, yes, there is this unfamiliar DNA on her underwear and her long johns. I don't know. I am just wondering if there's more to be looked at than just the DNA. Because it kind of seems like the focus is now solely on the DNA. Yes. And while DNA is huge, I'm like, okay, are there other explanations for this? Is... Are they the type of family that dry cleans everything and the dry cleaner that day had a cut on his hand? So I just don't know. Granted, I very much am the a very staunch believer in DNA. Yeah. So I think it is absolutely an avenue that should be focused on. I just think we should be too wary on putting too much slash 100% of the focus on only DNA. I agree. And my honest opinion on this case is that um the parents were hiding something i think something happened not sure exactly what that was but i think patsy and john um knew more than they were letting on to and that part of this was a ruse and i know patsy's life was completely ruined by this and she passed away a few Mm -hmm. years ago by cancer i believe i think she had breast cancer Yeah. yeah so she passed away and i know john has tried to move on with his life. He's married again. Um, I want people to be able to move on from things like this, but I am still so suspicious of them. That just, I that ransom letter to me mm-hmm. has so many red flags that again, I, I mean, maybe it was an accident and they felt the need to do this because of his status. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think either of them are a cold-blooded killer. I think something happened and it was accidental. But based on the case that was recently settled, maybe I don't want to say exactly what I generally think, but I just have some feelings. Um, My one thought on it, though, as just a thought, is if the kidnappers were intruders, were outside people, and really wanted to frame the parents, then they would have done a very good job. Yep, yep. So, I don't know. But you can say that for every case that's proven. of like, well, if someone wanted to frame that person, then they did the perfect job. Because that's what, who was accused. Um, I don't know. People framed in the 40s, I guess, in my yep. mind. But, yeah. Today, the John Bonet Ramsey case is still open and remains unsolved. And... If she were still alive, she would have been 29 years old this year. I did not realize that she was that close to me in age. Because I'm 32, just turned 32. Wow. She'd be someone that I would work with. You know? Like, I could have a coworker that's 29. I could have a friend that's 29. Like, that's not... That's... Oh, shoot. I really didn't realize she was in my age range. Yeah, she's someone who... Both of us could could be our coworker, could be our friend from school, could 
I always yeah. picture her as this little girl. And, I mean, she was robbed of the ability to grow up and be a woman. Yeah. She never got to find out if she wanted to grow up and be a teacher or a pharmacist or a cab driver in New York. I mean... Or an astronaut. Her future was... Yeah, that, too. I mean, her entire future, any path she would have wanted is gone. Yeah. So forever she's going to be stuck as the six-year-old beauty queen from Colorado. I know. With that, I think it's time that we jump into postmortem. Me too. So I think in this episode, my case was the more intense one. And I say that because I think in my case, we know that John Bonet was murdered, you know, that she died. And that basically there's no hope left. The the hope is finding whoever did this, maybe. Whereas in your case, there's still the hope that Timothy is alive out there. All right. There is. But let me interject for a moment because I think the reason yours is seen as more intense is because of how publicized it is and how it's literally something we have heard about ever since it happened nearly on a daily basis. And I say that as a bit of an exaggeration, but also as a truth, because it's everywhere. And when it comes to Timothy, that emotion of not knowing if your child is alive or dead is something that I think it is incomparable. Because at least, and, and not that having your child be murdered is by any means a good thing. It's not. It's horrible. It's one of the most horrific things I can ever imagine. But at least there's the possibility of closure. That's true. I mean... There's not the possibility of closure. We don't know where he is. We don't know if he's with someone and he's healthy and alive today. Or if Amy actually killed him and then killed herself. Like, there's just such a lack of evidence and lack of information that we just don't know. So I am going to argue a bit on this because these were both very intense. But I think mine has so many questions around it. That's true. And I think, you know, in your case... Or in any case where it's not known if, you know, your child's dead or alive, you know, on good days, you can imagine, you know, they're, they're happy and they're healthy and they're living life. And on bad days, you can convince yourself that they're dead and have been dead for years. And it's, you almost live through them dying just over and over again, because you just don't. Although, to be fair, if your child is actually murdered, I think you do still live through that every single day as well. That's true. That's true. But, you know, there is the the closure. Yeah. And, you know, if you're if you're a religious person, you might hold on to the fact that they're in a kind of afterlife or something. And with just not knowing that's some that's a comfort that you might not have. Agreed. But um, I still think that mine is the more intense one. I think it is. And I think a lot of that lends to the fact that we do have a lot more information about the JonBenet case and that it has been constantly looked at and talked about and scrutinized. And that, again, I mean, you had news reports from this year I did as well, but it's like our cases are both mm. like still alive and well. 
But I will, I will give this to you. I really just wanted to make a point that Timothy's case is extremely intense and absolutely I mean, anything dealing with a child is intense anything yeah so yeah but i will pick next week's topic and we will go from there okay well if this was an episode that you liked be sure to rate and review us on apple podcasts leave us those five stars let us know what you thought you guys are so amazing in bringing us up in the rankings adding those reviews and letting other listeners know what you enjoyed about our podcast. We really appreciate it. So if you haven't done so hop on over, literally takes like 20 seconds. Do it. Thank you. Absolutely. And like, we appreciate it so much. You can't even imagine. Y'all have no idea how much it means to us. Um, But also while you're doing that, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram Check out our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. And yeah, with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.